Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 40 of the Superhero Ethics Podcast. My name is Jacob Lichich. I'm one of your hosts. Today, I am joined, as always, by Matthew Westfox. Matthew, how's it going? Not too bad. Not too bad, Jacob. How you doing? I'm doing very well, and I'm very excited. I've been waiting on this one for, for quite some time. Today, we're going to be talking about the TV show The Orville. Uh, we're going to be... so. Spoiler alert for everybody who's listening, we're going to be spoiling a lot of the Orville. We've got some specific episodes we're going to talk about, and then we're also going to talk generally uh, about the show and things we like about it, things we dislike about it. Uh, and, I mean, I'm ready to dive right in unless there's something that you want to uh, you want to discuss prior to us getting started. Like you, I'm I'm really excited about this. I think this has been a great show that I have been enjoying much more than I thought I would, especially given uh, who has created it, and I think that that alone is something to be worth talking about. So let's let's jump right in. Yeah, so what is The Orville? For those who, have, who are not familiar with the show, it is a science fiction show uh, produced and written, I believe, at least in part, by Seth MacFarlane. And for those who are somehow not aware of who Seth MacFarlane <laughs> is, he is best known for uh, such productions as such, such cinematic masterpieces as Family Guy, and oh goodness, what's the one with the the mockery patriot FBI agent guy, American Dad? American Dad. Uh, also Ted. But he has the also done uh, some films such as uh, Some Number of Ways to Die in the West. Is it Fifty Ways to Die in the West? Something like that. Something like that. Um. Uh, so, so right away. When when I tell you okay when when this was pitched to me uh, as hey it's a it's a science fiction show uh, and it's you know it's done by Seth MacFarlane I immediately went to why do I want to watch that yeah right I, I had the same reaction and I'll, and I think we'll we'll talk about that that um for me it was very interesting that two different shows came out at the same time that both sort of seemed like Trek one of which was Star Trek Discovery which was supposed to actually be a Star Trek show. And the other was this Orville show uh, by Seth MacFarlane that seemed like a Star Trek parody. Um, and at first, I wanted nothing to do with it because I don't generally like parody shows, and I don't like Seth MacFarlane's humor for the most part, although I did love the movie Ted. Um, and I have been really surprised by, first of all, the, the fact that Star Trek Discovery does not feel much like a real Star Trek show sort of left me really hungering for a Star Trek show. Um, and then a number of people, you included, had been telling me how good Orville was and I was amazed with the fact that, A, it's it's not as Seth MacFarlane as I had feared, um, but more importantly, this isn't a parody. This is a complete love letter to Trek. Yeah, uh, that's a really good way of putting it, actually, uh, is that in many ways you get the sense that the people behind the show actually really love the the older-style Star Trek stories. And so many things that we see in the Orville, from from the way the characters are set up, to the kinds of conflicts, to the type of future that the Orville presents as as the, the future of humanity, it is far more like Star Trek than anything I have seen recently. Uh, it is, there is still more of that, that uh, sort of sophomoric uh, adolescent humor angle to it, uh, of course, because he's got to protect his brand, mm -hmm. right? Um, and sometimes that does make it a bit of a harder sell. Uh, but one of the things that I really enjoy about the show is that I came in completely skeptical thinking like, 
at best, this is going to be Galaxy Quest, and I don't think it could be better than Galaxy Quest was. Uh, and as it turns out, it wasn't. It was far less, as you pointed out, it was far less a parody and more a here's what Star Trek should be like these days. Yeah, and, and it's interesting because, and even then I would say, it, it's not even just like what, what Star Trek would be like, but it's very much what like original series and the next generation Star Trek was like. Um, yeah. I, I, I was thinking, as, as we're getting ready for this podcast, I was thinking there's an interesting irony. Um, you and I are obviously, as we've, we've talked about um, on your first podcast with us, huge Babylon 5 fans. Um, and there was always something a little interesting about how Babylon 5 and Deep Space Nine came out at about the same time. And there's lots of different arguments about which one influenced the other and, and some claims that Star Trek kind of ripped off Babylon 5, and we don't need to get into all that. But but clearly, Babylon 5 was trying to do something quite different than Star Trek, and around that same time, quite likely influenced in part by Babylon 5, uh, but although for, for other reasons as well, Deep Space Nine kind of drifted a little bit further from Roddenberry's original kind of Trek ideas. Now we have almost the exact opposite happening, where... The actual Star Trek show, Discovery, is drifting really far from Roddenberry's ideas. And that in the same time, there's another show that's come out that is not an official Trek show, but is actually pulling us way back to those, you know, the, the, the next generation, uh, you know, um, Captain Kirk, Captain Picard. We're going to go out and every episode be kind of be kind of a, a, its own thing, exploring the exploring the galaxy. Right, and that's that's what we're talking about when we say that it, it feels a lot more like Star Trek. Uh, uh, one of the things is that the the show is about a, a spaceship exploring the galaxy uh, and the conflicts of the crew, uh, either with each other or with the different races, different circumstances they end up encountering, um, and less so about the the problems with their own society. That's one of the things that D Space Nine explored. Yeah. And one of these days we'll do an episode on on Deep Space Nine because, or or several because there's a lot to to talk oh, about for sure. there. Uh, but for for now, let's before we get into specific episodes. Let me ask you. Oh, I, I, I do want to say one other thing, which is you mentioned Seth MacFarlane's sophomoric humor, and I agree with you that there are times where sophomoric, there are times when that is too much for me to take, and I'm not a big fan of it. But I also do think there's another element that I, I know you and I have talked about before that, but I do think it's really important to explicitly mention. Which is part of my problem with Seth MacFarlane is not just that I don't like sophomoric humor. It's that often a lot of that kind of humor goes to the lowest common denominator and some of the easiest, you know, the lowest hanging fruit that that stuff often picks up on is stuff that draws on sexist and racist and homophobic kind of kind of ideas. And right. that's in a lot of ways one of the things I was most concerned about with the show. And it's one where I'm still very much kind of a mixed bag on because, as I think we're going to talk about, there's a lot of ways in which the show is much more progressive than most other Seth MacFarlane things and really challenges some of that stuff in great, great ways. At the same time, there is a level of humor about ex-wife jokes that come off as kind of misogynistic and a couple other plot lines that are, are, are pretty problematic. Um, and we'll definitely be getting into those, I know. But I, but I do think it's just important to name that there's a lot that I really like about this show. The sophomore humor, I think it's not just that it's not great humor. It's sometimes that it becomes it, – it gets into some areas that are, are playing on things that I'm really not okay with. Right, uh, like the, the character of Yafit. Yeah. Right? So there's a, yep. there's a gelatinous um, – sort of a, a creeping slime uh, entity, alien. Uh, intelligent. He's an engineer. He's a member of the crew uh, named Yafit. 
but there's this whole subplot where he's uh, being incredibly pushy, trying to get the ship's doctor, uh, Claire Finn, to, to to date him. He's trying to court her, right. and he's doing it in this just incredibly pushy and um, uh, what stalker. There's the word I want to I mean, use. Stalkery. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's it's, it's borderline stalkery, and sometimes crosses that line uh and as we'll get into there's a, a problem that the show never ha- has not yet addressed that happens in a later episode centered around that quote relationship unquote because it is very clear that the doctor has zero interest in pursuing this regardless of how much this person uh tries yeah uh so yep no and that, that what? that's exactly the plot line that to me is the most problematic because it's that and, and again it's that kind of humor where Instead of a stalker being portrayed as a as a problematic, harassing part of a workplace, it's portrayed for humor. And the humor is supposed to be clearly that he has no chance with her and he's being ridiculous and silly. But still it kind of gets this idea of that kind of behavior being, oh, it, it, it's ridiculous and laughable instead of, wait, no, this is a huge problem. So, Right. So w- with that being said, why we wanted to talk about the Orville was that there are some specific episodes, and we're not going to cover all of them today because, as it turns out, there were more uh, that we wanted to talk about. But they do the thing that, that Star Trek did, uh, which is to tackle sort of these these problematic yes. issues. And in both the way that it does it and uh, the issues that it tackles are what really pains to me is, like, this is something that is worth exploring. This is This is a show that I want to keep talking about. Uh, so I'd like to dive right into the first one that we see, which is the third episode of the series. Mm-hmm. So it, it, we get one or two, we, we get two episodes basically to establish, and then we get the episode about a girl. So the plot line of this episode is that there's there's a race of of aliens called the Mocklin. And the Mocklin have set themselves up as a, a unigendered society. We get a couple throwaway lines in the first episode uh, to the fact that the Mocklins are an all-male society. And not really much is else is paid to that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and in episode two, I believe, we find out that, uh, the, that Bortus, who is the Mocklin second officer uh, of, of the Orville, is having a child with with his mate Clyden. Uh, now, the, apparently they they reproduce by like laying eggs and, and hatching them and whatnot. So he's having to take time off in order to, to gestate the egg. And when the when the egg hatches, when the child is is fully formed, uh, the child is female. It's a daughter, and that's what how episode two, as I recall, ends. And then we get about a girl. And basically what we learn in this episode is that their society, it's not that they don't, that they, they are not birthing females, but when that happens, it is automatically assumed that they're going to do a gender reassignment surgery at birth right. to male. Yeah, and this was an episode that I remember, it was hearing people talk about how good this episode was that made me first decide, okay, I think I want to give this show a try. Because... It's the kind of thing that is obviously bringing up a lot of very difficult, very nuanced – some very nuanced, some pretty pretty darn clearly black and white um, issues about you know, uh, gen- you know, gender itself and the way we privilege gender, about transgender issues, about gender reassignment surgery, which is absolutely something that happens in this country and in, the, in this world and is, is barbaric. Um, 
and and I was really impressed by how many people I I was reading online saying you know including a lot of people who are professional advocates for these topics saying I can't believe Seth MacFarlane is the one making a great argument about these issues but he is and and I was really myself blown away blown away by the episode. Um, I, I so think... to to be clear, when when you're talking about uh, gender reassignment being barbaric, you're talking about when it happens at birth. Yes. Right. Obviously, people. Who oh yeah. Ele- no. No. Oh yeah. Not obviously, but people who elect to do it uh, later in life because of of how they identify. We are not at all demonizing oh, no, thank that. You. I want to be very clear. Yeah, huge, huge uh, words I should have added was non-consensual at birth or at youth. Um, when yes. It, when is a Consensual thing. is yes. so important. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, no, no. Uh, gender reassignment surgery done intentional, um, not all – what we're talking about here is when it is being forced on an infant – um, as often does as often does happen to intersex people in our own world today, um, right? But anyway, but 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 so thank you very much for that clarification. Um, but 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 with this episode, what I thought was so interesting was how they explore. Well, like so many other Star Trek episodes, one of the things that I, and I'll kind of make this as a general point. Um, I've, I've talked before about how my mother got me into Star Trek, and what she loved was how what the shows would do was create some fantasy, some science fiction world that was so different from our own, but really what it was doing was taking one part of our own world and running with it to such an extreme that the discussion of it held up a mirror to our own culture. And I thought this episode did that and so, you know, it held up questions for us about how do we privilege male over female? What would happen if we took that to like a complete logical extreme? And, and how do we treat things that are different, you know? And, and when, when you have a mythology that says, all of this alien race are always male. But then the lived reality is that some of them aren't. And and to me, one of the most interesting parts of this episode was you have here a society where they're so dedicated to this truth that everyone has to be male that they're willing to literally mutilate their own children in order to make reality fit that mythology. And they don't see the problem with it. Yeah. Right? That's that's – and for, so for us, right, that, that is a horrifying concept. And one of the things I thought the episode executed on very well was this combination of the, the Earth people, of the humans, questioning and, and in a lot of cases judging Bortus and Clyden for both wanting to, to go through with this uh, gender reassignment. Um, so we have that angle and, and then talking with each other about, well, isn't it? Isn't this just part of their culture? Should we be judging them? Is this like really wrong? Yeah. Um, and just like not being able to stomach it because it is it's it's alien to the point where it's it, it would be uncon and, and you already discussed how it's unconscionable for us uh, for you and I to think of this being done to to a human infant. Uh, and so so it raised this question about judging other cultures from the outside, but then Bordis himself ends up having a revelation uh so again it is still by seth MacFarlane. there is still comedy they two of the crew members show him the stop motion rudolph the red-nosed reindeer and he takes away from that the the lesson that sometimes when someone's born different it is a gift it is something to be celebrated and that just forcing somebody to conform is not necessarily the best thing for them uh, so that that is ju- somebody judging their own culture from within, and the difference between that was was very clear. Um, 
Yeah, one thing I was reminded of when I was watching this episode because I I I, I like I think that that's such a good point of one thing it really highlights is the danger of being an outsider to a different culture and looking at something in that culture and thinking, oh my god, that seems totally wrong, which, which I, I think is a legitimate thing to think, but then taking it to the next step of, I want to now try and change it as the outsider without any understanding of what's actually happening. Um, and, and I was watching it, I was thinking of uh, Eve Ensler, the woman who wrote Vagina Monologues. Um, mm-hmm. Shortly after the Vagina Monologues, she launched this major campaign to try to end the practice of female genital mutilation in the um, in, in uh, Africa and the Middle East. Um, and, and completely understand, I mean, you know, it is, again, a, a horrific practice in a lot of ways, at least certainly to my eyes and I think to many people's eyes. But it's also a practice that is very deeply rooted in some parts of the culture there, and rooting it out is going to take an understanding of that. Um, and when Ms. Ensler tried to, to launch this big campaign to stop it, she knew absolutely nothing about the cult, about why it was happening in that culture and, and what was happening in there, and so wound up really being not getting much done because she came across as, you know, this white activist going to cultures that were not her own, telling them what was right and wrong, without any understanding of why these things were happening in those cultures. And she's talked a lot since then about how her realizing how big a mistake that was, and that now she's trying to support people within those cultures working for that change. And that's right. exactly what I saw in this episode, because you saw the crew of the Orville quickly realize that they thought this was a terrible practice and were totally sympathetic with them. But then they kind of charge in blindly saying, okay, no, we need to tell you all to fix this because we're right and you're wrong. And it blows up in their face for exactly those same reasons. Right. Now, uh, the doctor, uh, so so Claire taking a stance saying, no, I will not perform this procedure. Totally reasonable, right? right. Saying, I, I cannot solve my conscience doing this. I like that. That is that is a bridge too far for me. Is fine. I do like that uh, Gordon. Uh, so Gordon being the pilot and uh, John Lamar being uh, at that time the navigator. He later becomes the ship's chief engineer. Uh, they decide to just sit down with Bordis with this movie and try to help him convince himself. Yeah. Right. And I and I felt like it was at that time I was getting a little tired of the of the crew being so pushy. With with Bordis, and I was all like, "Oh, really? Now they're doing this? Oh, of course they're showing him this movie." But then, like, the fact that that actually changed him, and then he starts having arguments with his mate, with Clyden, about it, and then it culminates. This is once again drawing a parallel to Star Trek. In this case, Star Trek: The Next Generation. It culminates in a trial on the Mocklin homeworld uh, to decide the fate of the child, whether or not she will be allowed to remain female. Or go through this mandatory reassignment, uh, which apparently their culture does permit uh, them to not go go through with this if both mates agree. Right. Uh, but because they're in disagreement, because they're in conflict with each other over whether or not to do this, it's this huge problem because their society has not really dealt with that. Um, so it's reminiscent of measure of the measure of a man, where we're putting a human rights issue or we're putting a, an individual rights issue on trial to decide what is correct to do here. Right. Well, and, and, and there's two things there for me. One, just on the, on the Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer thing, I, I remember thinking as I watched this episode, you know, this is kind – it feels kind of heavy-handed and it feels kind of like we're all talking in, you know, big declarative statements. 
which in and right. of itself is so Trek. I mean, that was one of the things <laughs> yes. that always drove me crazy about Next Generation was how heavy-handed it was with its point sometimes. So in some ways I was like, okay, nope, I still don't like that, but it's a good reference to the show you're trying to reference. Um, but yeah, that, that trial scene is is harrowing, especially because you know, it would be easier if they if they painted – you and I always talk about how we don't like mustache-twirling villains. We want villains who really believe they are doing the right thing. And one of the things that that trial I thought did really well, uh, although it was heartbreaking because I so clearly disagree with them, but it made it clear that this was not mustache-twirling on behalf of the people who wanted to do the surgery. These were people right. who because of how they had – because of their culture and how they had grown up and what they had learned and, and because of their understanding that like – the very fabric of their society could be destroyed by by challenging this mythology. They and and also just because of what they thought the, uh, the the child would have to go through. Because what we do hear about the the few female Mocklins that do exist are are completely shunned and ostracized. They one hundred percent believe that they are doing this not only for the good of their society but for the good of their child. And right. So that the child has a positive experience. Growing up, exactly, and and I and that was really hard to watch because I want to hate these people. I want to think, oh, they're so wrong. They're doing this terrible thing to the child, and I do think what they're doing is terrible. But I also had to believe they thought what they were doing was right, and that makes it just so much harder to, to in a good way, in terms of good drama, to really recognize this isn't just about you know good people and bad. Right, and it was built on this myth, part of their mythology, is that the male gender is just inherently superior to the female gender. And one of the things I loved about this episode was we we hear throughout this episode uh, one of the great uh, contemporary Mocklin writers and philosophers being quoted. Mm -hmm. uh, I believe the the judge of the episode quotes this person, and uh, I think Clyden at one point does, Bordas at one point does. So we we. This is a very great storytelling technique. Uh, they built this. They built a mythology within the episode internally of this person being very important in current Mocklin culture. And we find the the crew of the Orville. Kelly, I believe, is the the person. So Kelly, being the first officer, finds this person, brings them in to the courtroom because, as it turns out, this person's been female this whole time, and they were ghost riding. Right. And that moment was just so powerful because it's like, here's somebody that you are holding up, you're putting on a pedestal, you're saying that men are men do everything better than women, that your males do everything better than your females. And it's just, there's no questioning that. And here, I am presenting you with an actual physical example. And as you, as you said, very heavy handed, right? Like yep. it's, it's not subtle at all and it's not trying to be subtle. Um, and yet, and yet... That one moment is not enough, uh, which it's it's heartbreaking. But I also feel like it wouldn't have felt it wouldn't have felt earned, and it wouldn't have felt right to solve this issue in a single episode when it's been such a systemic cultural problem. But the trial comes down on the side of nope. Uh, we're going to side with Clyde, and we're going to do the the reassignment surgery what? to the child. And, and that's exactly what I was going to ask you is because I I remember being really surprised. And I, I had to sit with it for a long time because I, I thought for sure this was going to be, as Trek episodes often are, once we present them the, the rational, logical case, once we point out – you know, in a lot of Trek episodes, there's a little bit of a like colonialist, like we know better than them. So you know, once we point out that what they think is a god is really a supercomputer or you know, whatever their, their false mythology is, 
in a lot of Trek episodes, once our heroes point that out to the people, they immediately come to their senses and make a change. Mm-hmm. Here, this didn't happen, and I was I was pretty surprised by that. Um, so what 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 was your take on that? What what how did you feel about the way that trial resolved? Where, as you said, they go ahead with the surgery. Yeah. Uh. So for me, and obviously it uh, it hurt right to see it, but it was so much more believable that even with even with that one moment in the trial where they prove at least one one female member of their society. Uh, was capable of producing something that all of them held in very high regard and that no nobody was her contemporary it was not enough to completely change the fabric of their culture nor to convince somebody who has been inundated with that culture that that doing that that following through with this tradition wasn't correct yeah because you that's not how the real world works right you don't just have like one one huge dramatic moment and you fix quote unquote an entire society. And that was to me one of the hardest things to watch. Cause I, I think many people and myself certainly included still, I, I hate that. I want to think that if we just show people the reality, the truth, you know, and, and I hear the own problems in my using those words. Like I'm, I, I know all the truth, but, but I want to think that if we can finally just let people really see that, then they will sort of open their eyes but I think you're right. I think this was much more realistic. And in some ways, that was one of the things that I most took away from this episode as a comment on our own world. Because, yes. you know, internet culture, at least certainly among progressives like myself and I think yourself, a lot of times I see that meme that goes around that goes, aha, here's that one study that will finally prove that the other side is wrong. And so everything will now be okay. And I always have to remember, it's like, God, this, this isn't how this works. There yep. is no intellectual magic bullet. When when a mythology is so deeply held as it is in, in the case of the Mocklins, one of the things that they're saying is that they their mythology tells them what is truth. And so a fact that challenges that mythology is able to simply be disregarded because they cannot challenge the mythology. And that, in a way, was very untrack, but I thought really good because I thought that was often, like I said, one of my problems with some trek. And I was I, I was heartbroken because I think we're seeing something horrible happening to a child. But I was also really impressed by the episode by willing to go that way of saying we can't just fix this problem easily. And that clearly, you know, this is I, – I, I am going to be amazed if this isn't an issue that is revisited in season two or three or four. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. We are coming back to this because that is the what, – what I can believe is that that is a spark that starts a cultural movement that creates strife on that planet yeah uh where there will be a counterculture there will be a countercurrent that that starts to to go against that and that's going to create some real problems for their society and again that's very realistic that it's not a oh flip the light switch everything's okay we see plenty of examples of how that doesn't work in our own society today um one thing i did want to say because we should move on to the next episode we want to talk about we have three on our list uh, but one last point I would like to make uh, on this episode, and I'll let you bring one up if, if there's something else you wanted to talk about as well. But what I loved in the end, so Bordas is, is immensely opposed to this decision. He feels like they ru- he's, he now feels he is ruining his child's chance to be herself, to, to be what she was meant to be uh, by, by undergoing this change. But the court decides it ends up happening 
and Bordis and Clyden have been at odds with each other the entire episode, right? They've been fighting with each other the entire episode, and prior to this point, their relationship was reasonably stable. It wasn't without problems, but they, they were clearly very loving and very caring. And it showed us how they continued to to link with each other, to bond with each other, and to strengthen their relationship uh, yeah. even after this very huge conflict and how it wasn't something where, you know, I, okay, I've invested multiple years in, in caring about you as a person and this one thing that I disagreed with you on that, okay, yeah, is a very big deal. Um, it didn't com- It doesn't just shatter their relationship. They decide to to build on it and to try to grow past it and raise their child together. And I thought that was like the one like little positive glimmer in what ultimately was an episode with a really bad ending. Yes. Not bad from from poorly written, but just like it, it was a it was not comedy, it was tragedy. And it was not yeah, it was not a feel good moment. It wasn't a like, oh the good guys triumphed. And you're right, I, I had really mixed feelings because part of me wants our hero to just be like, No, how could you do this to our daughter? You know, we're we're I we're are we're over and done with. But on some level, I appreciated the idea of, as you said, recognizing, A, first of all, we have this child together, and even though I think this terrible thing has happened, I want us to, to work together to be the best parents we can for the child. But but also just that, that our, our relationship is something that, you know, that, that encompasses so many things, including some great conflicts. And the way – yeah, I, I think you said it all perfectly, just the, that, that moment of the couple – and we've seen it over – you know, later episodes that there still is tension between the two of them, and there probably will yep. be, you know, um, um, going forward. And and yeah, so I, I, I really like that because, again, it also – that's a very nuanced relationship. You know, that's not a – things are good, then there's a fight, and the relationship is over. But recognizing right, that – which we see so often. that That's a huge trope in, in popular media, right, where people a, – a happy relationship can't sustain because there's no drama. right. Right, and it's it's something I, I grow tired of, but yeah. uh, I understand why writers do it. We could do a lot more on this episode, but yeah, let's move on to the next one. Yeah. All right, so the, the next episode uh, we'd like to talk about today is one called Majority Rule. Uh, so the, the premise behind this episode is they encounter a so – they're coming to a planet because there's a researcher uh, for their their version of the Federation – uh, I don't remember what it's called right now because the I union. just always think of it in my head. What the union? The union. But yeah, it's, yes, it's the union. 100% the it's, federation. It is, it is like 110% the federation. Uh, but yeah, the, you're right. They're, they're called the union. Um, they had some some researchers, some cultural researchers, going undercover uh, and the civilization on this planet, uh, trying to basically you know do some research, come back and be all like, here's what we found. Uh, but like they're disguising themselves as members of this society, uh, and the 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 reason our our heroes the reason the Orville comes to this planet is that uh, they broke contact they don't know what's happening now uh, and they're sort of trying to figure out what happened with with these these researchers um, and what we encounter is a civilization that is ruled entirely by popular vote via social media this is another like dropping anvils to to make our points mm-hmm. episode right. Uh, and I actually found a lot of uh, articles posted about it afterward, basically tearing it apart because what it does is it talks about the the possible evils and, and abuse of social media that the publishers of these same articles are in fact doing on a daily basis. Yeah. I am very biased in, in my assessment of this episode. <laughs> so, 
but uh, one of the things that it talks about that I really like is the dangers of mob rule. Mm-hmm. So, so what's upsetting about that to you, Matthew? Well, I think there's a couple of things. I think, to me, one of the defining moments of that episode, what, I think one of the things that is the scariest to me about mob rule is the idea that a person will change their mind it kind of actually this a little bit the same idea we were just talking about, but but that a person who has had direct experience and direct feelings or thoughts that have led them to a conclusion will change their mind because of what the mob believes, or will make mm-hmm. up their mind without anything of what the mob believes, without any of their own personal experience, just because it's what the mob tells them to do. And the defining moment for me is, you know, very early in that episode, right after. Um, uh, one of our characters, the the guy who becomes the engineer, um, Lamar. Lamar, thank you. You know, he goes and does this really offensive thing to a statue, and people take film video of it. It's basically and it basically goes popular on YouTube, and because people think he is being horribly offensive to this great cultural statue of theirs, I think it's actually religious in nature, uh, no, or it's cultural and historical. No, no, in nature. no, it's cultural historical. Yeah. Who's one of their pioneers? Right. But but the point is, so he becomes very like downvoted in, in this in this culture because of what has happened to him. But and, in the te- well, but, but, oh, let, let me just let me just say where yeah. where, where this connection what I'm saying about the mob stuff. Um, to me, what 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 I see in that first scene is so he he does this thing, and then while it's going on video, we don't know that that's happening yet, uh, or the video is going viral. He goes into a coffee shop, and the woman behind the counter clearly likes him and is openly flirting with him. And actually mm-hmm. gives him – in the society, you, you vote people up or down constantly. Um, and she gives him an upvote because she's kind of trying to be a little flirtatious and she likes him and thinks he's great. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, his downvotes start to go way, way up because of this video. And she sees the video and, and it's clear that she's a little bit bothered by the video. But, but the certain impression I got was that for her, it, it's not even that she's thinking, oh, all these people don't like him all of a sudden so I can't. It's, oh – I must not like him because all these other people don't like him. I mean, it just yeah. seemed her immediate switch of opinion of him from he's fun and cute and I want to flirt with him to he's terrible and I'm going to throw him out of my store is an immediate 180 that seems entirely based on her realizing uh, what public opinion is. Right. And to, to, to be clear, when we're talking about uh, the, the society ruled by social media – uh, what happens in the society when you get a certain number of downvotes? So there, there's a threshold. When you get a certain number of downvotes, uh, you get corrected. They put you effectively in in this kind of electric chair thing, and they lobotomize you. Yeah. Uh, the idea is it's supposed to like make you conform, uh, to conform to what people want, and to eliminate problematic elements in their society, ones that they don't want. And they show that they don't want to be a popular vote, but it is in fact just lobotomizing people. Yep. Um, so this is why this is a problem. Um, and they do this whole thing uh, where once you get a certain number of of downvotes, in order to try to protect somebody from this this fate, uh, they go on an apology tour. They they go to like various talk shows and try to win popular support back so that they don't have to meet this fate because otherwise it will just be a steady tide of of the society downloading you until this corrective action happens. Right. It's so bothersome. It is so troubling. And one of the things that I thought, well, I mean, I obviously like, again, it, it's so heavy handed and a lot of it is taking subtle nuanced ideas and making them, you know, much more blunt. But one, one of the things that I really liked that this uh, episode highlighted, and I did have some problems with it, which we'll get to in a second. 
but I like that it highlighted the idea that when it comes to forming public opinion, especially on the internet, where you know just a ten second YouTube YouTube uh, clip or you know one tweet can be what defines you. So often the narrative that forms becomes much more important than the actual story itself, you know? Right. Um, and, and as we see in, in this case, both in what condemns him almost and in what saves him, it's not about getting to the actual truth of what happened. It's not about getting to the actual context. It's about controlling the narrative. Um, and I thought that was such yeah. a brilliant commentary on the current sort of public relations world we live in and how problematic that is. Right. It shows what happens when a culture is conditioned to respond immediately to a particular stimulus rather than to take the time to research and fact check against what they see. And yeah, once again, anvils, it's clearly talking about our modern day society um, and how we communicate with each other and how it is far more narrative driven than it is driven by um, any kind of like vetted researched ideas. Yeah. So what are your problems with the episode? You mentioned that you want, you were going to get into them in a bit. What what, do you, what were things that you were less fond of with Majority Rule? So and, – and here again, this is I think um, – I, I, I have a lot of very nuanced thoughts about the current social media climate and the current you know sort of what, what gets referred to sometimes as a lynch mob, which I think is unfair because I think – and, and and to me, my problem – because I think there's a lot of problems with it, but I also think there's a lot of good that's coming out of it. And and I, I did think the art – this episode wound up being a little bit, as we've said, handy, heavy-handed in going just in one direction on that. Um, and I'll give a specific in a moment, but just talking generally. Like, for example, to me, I think you could walk away from this episode and think, yep, Seth MacFarlane gets it. The whole Me Too movement is total bullshit. Um, the lynch mobs that are forming online to go after these people is terrible, you know. And and I look and say, no, actually, in that way, that there is a regard to this is a public opinion thing, and it's happening through social media. But I think it's doing some real good. Um, and there's there was one moment in specific in the episode where a, a another member of their crew almost gets into this same you know downvote spiral in a really dangerous way because someone comes up to them and says oh, you're wearing a hat and you're not part of that culture, so you're culturally appropriating and you're wrong and bad. And and that scene felt like it was very clearly set up to mock, you know, the kind of social justice warriors who might who might who might be bothered by something like that. And, and, and that moment I was like, ah, come on, I think you're 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 attacking the wrong thing here. Um, so so that's that's this is interesting to me. Um uh, I cuz I disagree with what that moment was doing, but I didn't think of it in those terms when I saw it. Mm. For me, um, this is good. I like disagreeing with you. Yeah. Uh, for me, that moment, uh, that's, that came out really wrong. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, but for me, that, that moment was engineering, uh, conflict that, because I, I like to look behind the curtain at, w- at what the writing is trying to do or what the story is trying to do. Right. Uh, they're engineering a conflict for one of the characters because again, th- this is a, a lesser developed society than, than the union. And, because it is literally Star Trek, they have a prime directive or, or similar that, that does not permit them to interfere with a developing culture. So one of the crew members that's there is an alien. Uh, it's it's Alara. She's a Saturnian. I think that's the name of their, their, mm-hmm. uh, their race. Uh, but she has slightly pointed ears and, and a ridged nose. So they found some culture. They found some, some clothing 
from their research databanks that's like, okay, this is things people wear. So she found a hat that she could wear that covered her ears. Right. Uh, not being completely ignorant, and a lot of this was the fact that uh, each of our characters who get into trouble with the society do so because they're ignorant of uh, the cultures within that society. They don't they don't know any better, right? Yep. So to me, what that moment was doing was showing us a situation where normally I would be all like, yeah, she she really should remove that hat if it's disrespectful because there's, it costs her nothing to do that. She didn't realize it was a problem. But I personally know that the reason she's wearing that hat has some has to do with the fact that there's information under that hat that she cannot currently reveal. Right. Um, and to me, it was, a, again, a, a little bit uh, uh, cheating, but it was creating a source of conflict where we couldn't just do the easy thing right she she couldn't like uh she absolutely wasn't going to sit there and pretend she was a member of that culture right um and she wasn't going to defend her ability to to wear the headwear because you know okay yeah you got a point this probably is disrespectful and i didn't know uh and so if if the the so i argue that if the show had put some words into our characters' mouths saying that, you know, why is it, it's not a big deal, she can wear what she wants. Right. Um, and had that conflict, I'd be I'd be with you on that. I do see your point, though. I do see where you could walk away from the episode, from seeing that scene, thinking that. Yeah, and, and, and I, I definitely I, I appreciate your perspective on it, because that is a different way of seeing the scene, and I think there is an interesting point to be made there about the idea that maybe that, that they were doing something wrong there and, 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 and mistakenly. I there were little things about how that scene was played, the fact that the um the guy who was making the point came off as very effeminate in ways that um not that that, that not that, that there's anything wrong with that in, in general, but in a kind of what I think of as Seth Seth MacFarlane humor of effeminate male means we don't have to take his opinions as seriously because he's being a little bit ridiculous. Right. So you saw that character being presented as a straw man, and therefore exactly. you saw the entire scene as being a straw man argument. I see. Exactly. I see. That that makes sense to me. Again, that's that wasn't my takeaway, but I yeah. I definitely can see that, yeah. Well and, and but either way I I think my point is, and again, this is so heavy handed that it's hard to do. I think an episode I think and I, I did think this episode did this well, an episode that really says, hey, Let's take the current social media culture we have and the current like popular opinion and narrative over fact culture we have and take it to its logical extreme that that yeah that 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 the article the episode made some great points about how dangerous that can be even just now and how dangerous it will be if it keeps going i I think though that i I wish there had been a little bit more nuance of because I think you could walk away from it going, oh, all of this internet, you know, uh, anytime people on the internet start talking about this person is bad and a hashtag starts, that it's always bad, that it's always wrong. Th- that, that that was kind of the, the, the idea of the, the, of the episode. And that was where I pushed, wanted to push back a little bit because I did think there are ways in which we have to be very careful with things like – with any of these kind of things. But there's also an awful lot of good that's coming out of things like the Me Too movement or the um, – um, you know, some of the other things like this where, you know, public pressure is put on uh, – like when public pressure is put on airlines because of ways they had treated black customers very badly and things like that. And and I guess I just don't want to – I don't want to walk away thinking that all of that is wrong because I do think that we need to be careful about that. But, you know, like 
with the Me Too movement, we are absolutely seeing people's careers being destroyed because of public opinion about the terrible things they have done. And I'm just not ready to say that that's always wrong, because I think there is a lot of good that comes out of that. And and here I will agree with you, because I think as much as I enjoyed the episode, I do think that it was a pretty big miss that they at no point at no point in the episode are we presented with what are some of the benefits that the society is getting from these practices like wh- why are they like wh- what what is reinforced to them this idea that like this rule through social media is is functional is working is do is doing good um and i feel like if we had been presented with like even just one token case that you know here's a thing that happened and it was wrong we we got like one where it was like some corrupt business person who had mm-hmm. done something like terrible um but obviously because our our lead characters were in a position where we were like well they they he clearly didn't mean it because he had no idea the implications of his actions uh he was trying he was joking around with Alara at the time and didn't realize he was being super duper offensive to their society um which I, again like there's there's some things to be said for like why would you go into a culture and like not do any research but or not figure out things about them ahead of time but they were kind of in a time pinch they were trying to to find these people and, and get them out asap mm-hmm. so there's there's reasons for that but uh but yeah the, the, it was a pretty big miss that we didn't get more of a that it, that it wasn't grayer right that it was very uh very clearly presented on one side of this is a problem so uh, the episode that we'd like to talk about for, as, as our final episode is one that left me with kind of an icky feeling. Uh, it was very, I feel like it was a very well done episode, but one that uh, was in, presented an inherently problematic circumstance from an inherently problematic character uh, and tied into one of the, the central, like, continuing plot arcs of the show. Uh, this episode is Cupid's Dagger. Uh, Cupid's Dagger features the appearance, uh, for the first time on the Orville, on, on the ship the Orville, of the character Drulio. Now, for background, the captain of the ship, played by Seth MacFarlane, uh, Ed Mercer, was once married to Kelly Grayson, his first officer. And they got a divorce after Ed Mercer came back from a tour. This is before he was a captain. I, I think he was a commander at the time. So it was before his promotion. Um came back and found his wife, Kelly, in bed with, with this character, Julio. Um, and that, like, spiraled into this thing where he got super depressed and he, like, uh, crawled inside of a bottle, divorced his wife, uh, divorced Kelly. And then when we start the show up, this is important for, for understanding the context of the episode, when we start the show up, he is being given command of a ship, and we learn later it's because uh, Kelly, his ex-wife, has sort of uh, poked at the admiral who, an admiral who she has a uh, relationship kind of outside of work with uh, in that she's a family or he's a family friend uh, in order to get him this opportunity, both because she believes in him, but also because she will be assigned as his first officer and wants the opportunity to repair their relationship. Um, There's a huge pile of problems with, with that whole dichotomy that I don't feel we have the time to get into in this episode 
but what we are going to get into is the fact that when this this character appears um it appears on the ship at a time when ed and kelly are you know kind of getting used to each other again kind of um growing on each other again and he comes in you know sort of as that that uh writer's trick of like ha here's here's a source of tension again but then the episode turns into this so like we we see kelly sort of like being interested in julio again when he's there and so like at first i'm thinking okay this is going to be this is going to be one of those episodes and i'm really going to dislike it and then when ed goes and confronts julio about the whole situation something happens and then ed starts getting really into julio yeah and so we learn over the course of the episode that uh, the, the species of this character, uh, this character, the, their race, uh, goes through this cycle where they emit this just like really intoxicating pheromone. Uh, and during that time, just everybody wants them. Right. right. And like, so we end up like Ed ends up sleeping with him. Kelly ends up sleeping with him. Uh, the entire crew ends up getting kind of uh, love fever in, in some sense. And there's a, a thing involving that aforementioned blob character, Yafit, that we'll go into. Right. Because, um, man, there's some problems there, too. And, and I think really essential to this is it's not just that this person becomes incredibly attractive. And so people can now make their own decisions about whether to sleep with him but are very attracted to him. It's that clearly people are like they want him so much as to lose all sense of logical reasoning. You know, in terms of like abandoning all of their work responsibilities and not being like like this isn't presented as this person's very attractive. This is presented as this person is using a I mean, not maybe not intentionally, but this person has a kind of scientifically explained thing that that basically makes people lose all control in their ability to make sexual decisions. Right, and and, and responsible decisions, and, and being be consensual. Yeah, uh, so that, that, that that's, that's the absolute assent. That's the absolute point. The, is it? If they lose the ability to give consent. Sorry, go on. Right, and that's that's the huge crux of why I wanted to talk about this episode in particular, uh, because I'm completely okay with 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 polyamory, with people, you know, like loving and being with whoever they like, as long as everything is consensual and everything is great. But without that consent, without being with people being able to give informed consent. I think it's a huge issue, and this character of Julio um, comes at it from a perspective of, yeah, sure, they can't consent, but, like, I'm not going to turn turn it down. The worst thing that happens is we all have great sex. I don't see what the big deal is. You know who he yeah, – I, 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 and it, it, it's funny because I think you and I both love this show – uh, because there's so much this show does right, but we're spending a lot of time talking about what the show does wrong. <laughs> but I think for good reasons, because there are some places where it really stumbles. And this is by far the episode that where I was most troubled by it, because to to me, like we said, they're, they're, one of the things we like about shows like this is the idea that you can take an issue and take it to its logical extreme in order to ask you know, questions about it in our own world. But the problem is here, I think they're trying to say, let's take that issue of, you know, being so attracted to someone that you kind of lose your head, you get Twitter-pated or whatever it is, and take it to its logical extreme. But there, they're not taking it to a logical extreme. They're crossing a very distinct line of consent. And and to me, and yes, it might be, you know, um, it gets complicated, but there is a very clear line between someone being, like, really into someone and it affecting their decisions Versus someone no longer being able to make actual – their own decisions about who they are sexual with. Um, and I think that was a mm-hmm. real problem in this is, – is, is, because I'll be honest, and this is going to seem like a huge stretch. 
Um, Julio, that's how you pronounce his name, is that correct? Julio, yeah. So Drool and then Io. He, ki- yeah. he kind of reminded me of the very comic presented, but the same character as the Purple Man from Jessica Jones. You know, in terms of that ability to just control what other people do and having that sort of amoral, well, they're going to do it. So I'm going to I'm going to enjoy that and take advantage of it. Clearly, he is much more lighthearted about what he's doing and he's much more, you know, in his mind, I don't think he's manipulating anybody anywhere near as much. But to me, it is the exact same kind of issue of having a a ability that removes other people's abilities to consent to what you're making them do. Right. He in a lot of ways, and I I love that parallel. I'm so glad glad you brought that up. Uh, in a lot of ways, he is very much like Kilgrave, up to and including the like, what's the big deal? Yeah. Right. I'm getting like I get what I want. Nobody for, from his perspective, from the character of Julio's perspective, and this is something I'm going to push back on again because I think this is something that uh, the episode actually did well. Um, was present us this character who you know he doesn't seem unlikable. Until you've pulled back this curtain and realize, oh, oh, he's been doing this the entire time. Like, at first I was like, oh, Ed's turning out to really like this guy, too. Wait a minute. That doesn't tra- that doesn't track at all. But I-, I think it's I think it's cool. And I think it's imp- one of the things I really liked is that uh, we-, we definitely had a scene where these two uh, clearly presented as male characters slept together. And it wasn't like literally nobody. Uh, on the Orville gave Ed any grief over that. And you know what? That's completely correct. And that was, I w- there's nothing to grief him about. I will say that was a moment where I feel like Seth MacFarlane most was not Seth MacFarlane and where I wanted to give mm-hmm. him so much credit because yeah. when I saw um, the captain sleep with this other guy, I kind of internally braced myself because yep. I thought there was going to be this moment when, you know, gay panic is a huge part of that kind of sophomoric humor of, oh, ha, ha, you got you slept with a guy. Oh, you're gay now. Oh, you know, that kind of that kind of thing. And there's none of that. Um, his friends are clearly concerned about him. His friends are wondering, like, why aren't you doing your job? Why are you sleeping with this guy? Um, his friends are making fun of him a little bit because he just slept with a person who, you know, he was supposed to hate and who broke up his marriage in theory. But the fact that it was another guy who he slept with is not part of what the other guys tease him about in the slightest. And for all the problems I had with this episode, that point I thought was fantastic. Um, because it, it, it should, you know, it shouldn't be. And I thought that it, in some ways it's a little sad that we're saying that like there's a great thing they did by not doing this really bad thing. But unfortunately, in modern day TV, that is pretty rare, and that and especially alone especially for think... for Seth MacFarlane, it's yep. it's I, I appreciate it. it. It gives me hope that he's growing as a media producer to the point where he's all like, you know what, it's probably irresponsible of me to continue using that using that particular lowest common denominator style of humor because it's not something that's funny. One thing I wonder about here, and I, 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 this is going to be a little bit of a tangent on Seth MacFarlane, and then let's get back to the episode, but I think it's, it's worth talking about because this show is such a departure for him. And I, I know nothing about him as a person, and I'm, I'm projecting here a lot, but I've read in sort of biographies and interviews with other people who start as comedians and then try to get taken more seriously, that at some point they realize they're at this sort of crossroads where the humor that has gotten them really far in their career is also now holding them back from some of the more serious stuff they want to do. 
mm-hmm. and they have to start figuring like how much should I do that humor in order to get big enough that I can do the serious stuff I want to do versus how much does doing that humor lock me into being the guy who does that humor and now I can't do anything anymore. Right. Um, my hope is, and I have no reason to think this is true and maybe it's not, but my hope is that a part of what's happening with the show is Seth MacFarlane is real. He may realize that the problems with this humor or may, he may just be sick of it, but either way, he's getting to a point where he's saying, I don't want to do that humor anymore. I have to put some of it into this show because it's what people expect of me and it's what is going to get a network to give me money. But the fact that we're seeing so much less of it, as it, it was really bad in the first couple episodes, it's gotten so much less as the show goes on, it, it makes me wonder if on some level this is intentionally Seth MacFarlane trying to move out of that part of his career and do something a lot broader. Right. And so uh, we're, we're going to get back to Julio specifically in this episode, but one thing that, that that's tangentially related to this, at one point he makes contact with the character of Yafet we talked about earlier, the, the blob character. This is something that is still bothering me about the, the outcome of this episode to this day. Uh, he makes contact with Yafet, and Yafet ends up absorbing some of this pheromone because, like, by make contact, like, people walk through Yafet sometimes. And it's not a big deal because as long as all of his, 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 he has all of his pieces, he appears to be completely fine. And so he just reforms and he's okay. But what that did was apparently, like, again, make him absorb, make him be a carrier for, for some of this pheromone. And so, as we were talking about earlier, that whole stalkery thing he was going after uh, uh, Claire with, now in this episode, we get her suddenly coming on to him as well. Um, And it's just like this complete 180 of her character. And what really bothered me about that is that, okay, in Yafet's case, he's not aware of it. But he probably should sense that something is up. Yeah. Right? He probably should should realize that, hey, people don't just do a complete 180. Like, people don't just get broken down over time and then suddenly want you because you've been persistent enough. That's that's a real problematic way of thinking. Uh, but instead, he's just all like, oh, sweet. Yes. And then and then when it comes out that this is what happened and this is why, Julio and Claire don't talk about it. And there's or not Julio and Claire, excuse me, Yafet and Claire don't talk about it. And there hasn't yet been a moment where Yafet apologizes to Claire for taking advantage of her. And yeah. that to me is just it, it's a it's it's a piece hanging that I really want to see explored. I want that moment, and I feel completely robbed that I haven't been given it yet. It is one that I think was really was really problematic on a number of levels. I think, you know, you and I have talked about this uh, a good deal on the podcast, and we're probably going to talk about it an awful lot when Ready Player One comes out. Um, but but <sighs> I think one of the the worst story tropes in a lot of the science fiction and fantasy and and in general sort of geeky media that we read or that we see. Is this idea of if you just keep being persistent and being that stalker, you know, eventually you will wear her down and she will change her mind. And I think that it's a really important thing to think about is when someone who has been telling you no all of this time all of a sudden suddenly says yes, first of all, why in the world were you continuing to ask anyway after the first no? But also you shouldn't be thinking, oh, God, it finally worked. You should be thinking, wait a minute. Is this actual real consent? Is this a real yes? Because such a dramatic change has happened. Um and I think Yafet really fails as a character. That, I mean, not that um, um, not the writing, but that that the character did did something really wrong there, and the writing fails, and then it has not addressed that in any way. I agree. Um, and and 
And the other thing that I think is worth mentioning is, because again, this is one of those things where I don't even think the writers intended it in any way, but I think we have to name it because because it may have been... I don't think the writers did this intentionally, but I think it was absolutely a subconscious part of it. It's important remembering that Claire is black. Um, mm-hmm. That it is a black... It is an older black woman who all this happens to. And she is presented as being very attractive in ways that I think I, I really appreciate in a couple of the other episodes that they allow her to be... Because you don't often see older black women presented as very sexual figures. Right. But I do also think, kind of going back to that thing I was saying about who is it okay to be a victim... If there's any character on TV who you can most get away with having, you know, non-consent, these kind of things happen or non-consensual things uh, happen to her, I mean, a, a rape for all intents and purposes, um, an older black woman, you can get away with that a lot easier um, because of because of racism and ageism and things like that. And I think that that's, like I said, I don't think they did that intentionally, but I think it, it was absolutely. I think the writers would have had a lot more trouble writing that scene for a younger white woman. And I think that that's that is really a problem and something that should be named. Right, and and I'm I'm optimistic that we'll get something, uh, some service paid to that in in the next season. But currently, those two characters haven't they they've only interacted one other time, and it was because somebody had played a practical joke on Yafet, uh, where he had to go to uh, the the medical bay in yep. order to solve it. Um, and Claire was very clearly still angry with him and was all like, this this better be an actual medical issue or I don't want to talk to you. Um, but yeah, at no point did Yafet use that opportunity to go, look, while I'm here and I have your attention, I want to apologize or blah, blah, blah. And I, right. Again, felt really robbed that we didn't get that. Uh, so let's get back to the, the character of Julio because one of the things that I, in this episode that I, as I continued watching and as it finished... I realized that I really liked was that we had a source of conflict. We had a villain who was presented to us as a friend. Mm-hmm. He's a he acts like a friend. Uh, people are treating him like he's a friend, like, like he's someone that, that they appreciate that they, they like getting along with, but actually he's, he's kind of a wolf in sheep's clothing. Uh, he, he seems like he's nice, but he seems to me like he's actually a narcissist uh, in, in many ways. And he doesn't actually care about other people so much as he cares about his own enjoyment of his life's experience. Yeah. In, in many ways, he, he feels like someone to whom the, the – he, he's not immoral. He's amoral. You know, right. it's not that I think – and that's where he is different than Kincaid. Uh, or, uh, Kilgrave. Uh, Kilgrave, thank you. Um I'm terrible with names today because it's not that he's thinking, ha, I'm going to break up these people's marriage. He's thinking Kelly's cute. I want to have sex with her. Who cares what it does to their marriage? You know, and it's in some ways that's even worse. And so, uh, again, it, it makes for a really fascinating villain because it's not mustache twirling. It's someone who is really, you know, screwed up in very different ways than what we're used to. Right, and, and it's that it's that idea that we talked about, where like his his logic is internally consistent with him being the hero of his own story. Right, right. That he's doing what he's being free, and he's doing what what he wants, and he's appreciating life. And it wouldn't, and you know, the world would be a lot better off from his perspective. I'm sure if everybody approached life that way, and that's the whole problem. I'm sure in in his mind. Right. I mean, in some ways. <sighs> He seems like a perfect argument for a, a, a really good embodiment of a kind of privilege because right. part of his idea is, look, 
I, I think he thinks everyone's having a better time by having sex with him because isn't it so much fun? And But the privilege that he's coming from is he thinks that everybody's on an equal playing field of being able to make their decisions. And he's not recognizing that you know he's able to go through life going, oh, I want to sleep with this person. I will. I want to go to sleep with this person. I will. While the other the people who are sleeping with him don't have that don't have that ability because they literally cannot consent in the way that he can. Well, and, and I think he does realize that actually because he he acknowledges that people you know don't actually behave like themselves when this is happening. He just doesn't think it's a big deal. Yeah, um, no, that's and one a good thing point. That, that really solidified me him to me as a villain and as somebody who is not actually a friend to either Kelly or Ed. He's presented as a friend of Kelly's because when she was when she was having a hard time because Ed was like very rarely home, um, and uh, he was presented as somebody who was like who who she could confide in, she could talk with, she could interact with. He was there, that that kind right. of thing, right? Um, but at the very end of the episode. Uh, he's he's you know now kind of established a relationship uh, with both Kelly and Ed, um, and he has an opportunity when when they ask him point blank, hey, when when Kelly cheated on Ed those those years ago, was were you on this part of your cycle, right? And he has a, he has an opportunity to give them a direct answer to that question. He could say yes, I was either because it's the truth. Or because he recognizes that they're trying to repair their relationship with each other and he can give them that out. That's something that he can do for them. Mm-hmm. Or he can say no because it's the honest answer, right? If if that is in fact the honest answer, he can say, no, I'm sorry. Like, I would like to tell you yes because I know that you need that. Um, and there are a couple, like, less good answers that he can give. And instead he chooses to give the worst answer possible, being like, maybe. Yeah. And I think he, in fact, literally says maybe. And that, to me, is what solidified him as, as an actual villain character. Uh, and not, not not an antagonist, but somebody who is like actively being a bad person to people who are supposedly his friends. Yeah, to me, that was a really important moment because, like you said, it really showed that he's not out for anyone's better better interests, even if he's telling himself he is, because he has to know how much emotional chaos that line is going to cause. Because, as we were saying before, like there is a clear line of consent that is being crossed with his activities. And they do make a point of saying that it is only like at a certain point of the year that he has this, and that the rest of the time he is, he is a fairly seductive person, but it's not... It, other people are still able to consent. He is just... You know, you know, he is, they, they often want to consent, because he's a, a very attractive, very seductive person. And... Part of what they had set up is that in Kelly's case, that the seduction had been somewhat mutual because she was in a situation where, because of problems in her own marriage, she was really wanting attention or wanting, um, uh, um, you know, uh, affection from someone else in ways that can absolutely affect her decision making, but are still her making a decision at least on some level. Although we can we can also even talk about how even things like that can affect one's ability to give full full and informed consent. But to me, there is such a fundamental difference between seductive person comes along and encourages you to make a bad decision versus person comes along and you can't make a decision. And I I think this episode especially is one where I'm really enjoying the show, but I'm going to judge the show a lot, especially going forward, on whether they revisit this question and, and on how they revisit it and how they judge it. Because 
if we get some acknowledgement, as you said, first of all, that what Yafit did was really wrong, and, and I think an apology would be nice, but frankly, I think I, I don't think an apology even would be enough. I think more than that is needed, given how screwed up that was, um, how wrong what he did was. But but even just in regard to the, the, the couple and, 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 and Drulio, I, I'm going to be really curious to see how much the show is willing to acknowledge it, because clearly um, the captain and Kelly, they need to they're figuring out what their relationship is, and this this issue that happened is clearly a huge stumbling block that they're dealing with, and whether or not they're going to get back together or, or just have a good relationship with each other, even as just colleagues and work people. And I feel like on some level they're, they're going to have to answer that question that he refused to answer. Right. And or or decide that it doesn't matter, right? right? Or be or be able to move past it. Um, that gets into an episode that we're not going to talk about today, but there are at least two more. Uh, so we're, we're going to revisit the Orville at some point. And I think I've said everything I feel I wanted to say about Keep It Stagger. Do you have any, any final thoughts on that episode? Or do we want to go into our closing thoughts, do you think? No, I think we can go into our closing thoughts. Like I said, it, it's, 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 a, um, it's a troubling episode on a lot of levels, and I'm, um, it, it, it's probably the one that I'm most bothered by of all of them. And I think there's, a, there's enough good things happening in the show that I am still really liking it and still encourage people to watch it. But I'm also going to be, <clears throat> especially as we talk about it more and I think about it more, it makes me feel like if, if we go another season or two and the stuff that was talked about there is never really brought up. Because ter- what I don't know is how much the writers of that show realize the problems that you and I are talking about. And if they do, and we're going to address that at some point, then then huzzah to them. If they don't, and it isn't really addressed at some point, that that may start to make me rethink some of my thoughts on the show. Right, and and that's one of the things I wanted to say as part of the closing thoughts on the show is that while I'm really enjoying it, and while there are a lot of elements again that are reminiscent of of original Trek or Next Generation that are keeping me interested, what I want to see. Is, is I want to see consequences to things yeah. like this, right? Um, and, and that's a good reason to, to have Cupid's Dagger be the last one we talk about because there, there are y- – Yafit's actions should have definite consequences. And so far, they really haven't. Like, Claire's been a little bit upset with him, uh, more so than she was before. She wasn't exactly pleased with him with, with all of his his pressure and, and stalkeriness and, and, and persistence before. But now there's this whole other thing that has happened, and I feel like we haven't bought those things back. Yeah. Like, and so it's, oh, that, that's uncomfortable. Uh, and also consequences on the on the side of the gender reassignment uh, for for Bordas and Clyden's daughter. Uh, consequences for what happens now yeah. with the Mocklin society, right? I want to see that. I want to see it building on those ideas and and really showing us a, a world where we set something up and then if we don't address it in that same episode, we do address it later. Yeah. Uh, if, if there are things to talk about or things to address. Especially because I think one thing that I, I like about the show because it's so different is that the show is not very serialized compared to a lot of other shows. You know, this, this show is allowing itself to be much more episodic in terms of each episode is a separate story and you can kind of like watch them out of order and not be missing a lot. And that's great, but that does mean that there, it, there's a little bit of a danger in episodic television of the issue you raise in one episode is thought to be completely resolved by the end of the episode. And that was always a problem I had with Next Generation Star Trek. And, and that, you know, I think that's going to be an interesting thing here is, are we going to 
there are issues that they are bringing up that shouldn't just be resolved at the end of episodes. They certainly aren't being portrayed as being resolved. And so I hope we get at least a little of that serialization of those of those issues being brought back up again. Right. Well, I, I think that's that's all I've got to talk about on the Orville for, for today. There's a lot more. We, we've got a couple more episodes. We wanted to talk about the, the series finale in, or, or the season finale, excuse me, in particular had some some really interesting things to talk about. But yep. uh, for, for people listening, what do you think of the well, Orville? Actually, you, can, I, you... can I make one last point? Yeah, yeah, go on. Um, and this is more of a meta point, but I think it's a really interesting one that it brings up and, and, and will lead into what you're saying because I would love to hear people's feedback is – I feel like the Orville, and 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 now Star Wars: The Last Jedi is raising a similar issue. It really challenges my ideas and makes me think in new ways about what does it mean to have ownership of a concept like such as being a Trek style show, you know? Because what we have right now is this really interesting moment where we have two TV shows, one of which is an official paying you know money to the Roddenberry family for the rights. Star Trek show, and the other is very much not, and is very pointedly doing everything they can legally to not get in trouble for being a, a, too close to Star Trek. But yet, one of them is clearly much more in line with what is what we think of as the Star Trek ethos, and what isn't, and one isn't. Um, and I don't know what the answers there are, but I think it raises really interesting questions for us as fans and as media, um, you know, both people who enjoy media and who talk about creating media, of what does it mean to be true to the ideas of something? Um, and what does it not? And wh- when is it okay to differ and go away from it? And when is it okay? Because many people, I think, deep space think Deep Space Nine is the best Star Trek show there's ever been. It was also quite a departure from Gene Roddenberry's original idea. Um, and and so I just think there's I, I'm really appreciating the fact that this show is raising those questions again of to what extent who should be being true to the ideas of something like Star Trek and and when is it important and when is it good to differ from those and and just all those questions. Uh, so, so what I was leading into, of course, is, is we want to hear from from you, from the people that listen, uh, what what your thoughts on the Orville are. I know some people I've talked to, they said, yeah, I couldn't get into it. I watched the first episode and I and I and I couldn't com- continue with it, and I understand why. Uh, are you one? Of, are, are you like them? Did you not continue on to see these episodes? Are you now interested because you've heard us talking about this? Do you have different ideas about uh, some of the messages? Do you think? Uh, the the scene in Majority Rule with the the person talking about cultural appropriation was in fact being presented as a straw man argument. Am I off base there? Uh, or was there something else in in one of the other episodes that you saw that you think uh, is a topic that you'd like to hear us talk about? I, I'm really really interested if anybody has any ideas or things that that they thought were challenging. We can't necessarily think of everything in some things that we don't identify. We do in fact want to talk about. We just don't know about them yet. Uh, Matthew, do you, have, do you have anything to add in the in the closing of the show? No, I think that's it. I think, as you said, we would love to. Um, obviously, this is going to be um, folks going into their holiday week and um, New Year's and all that kind of stuff. But you know, talk to us on Facebook, talk to us on Twitter. You can find us in both of those places at Superhero Ethics. You can also email us superheroethics at gmail dot com. Um, as the new year gets started, Jacob and I are going to be talking about how we can really increase those conversations happening online because. Um, for us, that's what really makes this show so much fun. Um, we love to talk to each other, um, but we get to hear each other a lot. I want to hear from you guys, and I know Jacob feels the same. Um, what are you liking about Orville? What are you not? Do you think Orville is um, really being you know, proper to Trek, or is Discovery more like Trek in ways we haven't seen? Um, let us know in any of those ways. And most importantly, um, 
If you're enjoying the show, um, if you're enjoying the kind of stuff we're talking about, um, let us know. You can leave us a review on iTunes, a five-star review or any review is great. Um, and also share this with your friends. Um, we're, we, every week we're getting more people listening and we're getting people saying how much they're glad they discovered this podcast. Uh, and we want to keep growing that. So if you think this is an episode that was interesting, um, if it raises some questions you want to talk about with your friends, send them a link. Share, share the episode with them and hopefully you guys can talk about it too. Um, Jacob, thank you so much for leaving this conversation. I know this was a topic you were really excited about for a while. And I think this was a great, uh, great discussion. Thank you guys all for listening and have a great day. Yep. Take care.